Hello, everybody. Before we start, I just wanted to say that this is a special podcast that was not part of the uh, Book of Mormon class that I do every week. Uh, There was some additional uh, uh, information about uh, uh, the plan of salvation that I wanted to, to spend a few minutes on. And uh, so I put this out as a, as a special podcast. It's a bonus, if you want to take it that way. We're receiving an extra uh, beyond what we paid for, right? So thank you for listening, and I would love to get your feedback on this one. Thanks. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Thank you guys for joining me on kind of a special uh, uh, podcast that's going to come right in between uh, some of the other classes that we're going to be doing. Obviously, I'm doing this at a time uh, where we're not in front of the class because I wanted to take some time and clarify uh, some of the uh, interesting doctrines that I think that we're finding and and the deeper, uh, more powerful understandings that we can have of uh, the plan of salvation and and exactly how the gospel works and what that means and relates, wow, to... to, um, uh, what's going to happen to us eternally. Uh, a lot of this understanding, I, I give a, just all the credit in the world to uh, the guys at the Maxwell Institute, particularly uh, people like Terrell Mason, uh, Adam Miller, uh, Patrick Mason, Terrell Givens, uh, those guys, uh, Fiona Givens, have just been doing a magnificent job in in helping understand and dig and, and see, see the gospel in even a more powerful effect than maybe we've realized in the past. Um, so let's go ahead and frame it uh, initially this way. Um, and that is that if we're going to try and understand uh, the gospel and, and maybe why it is that sometimes we've misunderstood uh, the gospel, we have to come back to the idea of where it came from historically. If we go back, interestingly enough, to uh, uh, the early days of the church when they were, uh, early days meaning uh, Jesus and his followers, uh, and then it transfers to Paul and he takes this message uh, to the Mediterranean and the apostles take it forward. But here's basically what they believed. Back then, there was a a very solid sense that they weren't trying to make it to heaven. They they believed that heaven had come to them, that baptism was uh, being baptized into the kingdom that was presided over by uh, King Jesus, Christ uh, Jesus, and 
And because of that, they were already in the kingdom. They weren't worrying about heaven. They were worried about their neighbors. They were worried about taking care of one another. Uh, and that baptism was uh, a commitment to duplicate the, going down into the grave uh, as the Savior did, and you're going to symbolically do that uh, in baptism. So what their belief was is that when the Savior had said, you know, thy kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven, they were expecting that the kingdom would come and that the kingdom had come and that it had arrived. It was this, as N.T. Wright would say, it was this quiet revolution uh, that just took over the world very gently and quietly and the Romans never saw it coming uh, until we get to Constantine and suddenly... Christianity has come out of nowhere to take over the entire uh, Roman Empire. How'd that happen? Well, it's because they, they believe that in those quiet little house churches in Corinth and Ephesus and, and Rome and Athens and Thessalonica, that they were revolutionizing the world, that the kingdom had come uh, and that they were going to wait for uh, the kingdom to come to them. So again, for them, it wasn't about heaven. We get through to uh, Constantine, and uh, Constantine, and and the uh, in about 300 A.D. 321, uh, he's going to be uh, trying to put things together. But now you're getting this this concept, and especially an, another hundred years later, when we get to Augustine. Uh, they're trying to put together and understand uh, the gospel uh, with a background of Greek uh, mythology and kind of Roman dominance. Uh, but there were still so many for hundreds and hundreds of years, great voices trying to say, yes, there was a preexistence. Yes, the Father and the Son are separate. Yes, it's about heaven coming to us. Um, and... Uh, all of those seem to go by the wayside, especially with Augustine, when when he starts to formulate his idea, and he's a prolific, prolific writer, and he started understanding uh, the gospel uh, kind of from the Roman-Greek idea of things, and now you, you got this major shift from an early church that was focused on the ability to uh, love and serve one another to and to do it as a group. For Augustine, it was about salvation and, and the focus became overbearingly on sin and, and that you were going to, if we we're going to talk about sin, that sin would be that dividing line between those who were going to make it to heaven and those that were now going to be thrust down to hell. Um, in fact, it was Augustine famously who said uh, one of the enjoyments of those in heaven is watching uh, the others burn in hell. So now suddenly we got this whole shift to it's about sinning, it's about who goes to heaven and who doesn't go to heaven, what it takes to get there. What happens when you've got people that are sinning and doing things that they shouldn't? They're now breaking a law. Which law? Well, the laws that God laid forth. And for Augustine, and then really ex uh, 
expanded under when we get to the Reformation a thousand years later. Um, they saw a very angry God, a vengeful God who had given out laws and sinning was breaking the laws. And this God, like, like the Greek gods, demanded vengeance. There had to be vengeance. And darn it, somebody has to pay for, these, for this egregious break of, of his laws. He's, he's a very jealous, angry God. And so now you have to find a way to appease this God. Um, and each time that they would do that, God, the, the, the God of uh, that early New Testament who was loving and caring and trying to find a way to include everybody, the Greek God uh, the, the, the had morphed into this Christian God who was distant he was far away. He was so much bigger and more magnificent than everybody else uh, that he didn't. That he was even jealous of anybody that might approach uh, with hubris, hubris, his power. Now he was going to uh, want vengeance, and somebody has to pay for sin. It's it's a it's a debt that has to be paid. Otherwise, God would be angry and upset. So now comes this this. Uh, idea of penal substitution where there has to be there has to be the law requires justice requires and this ought to sound familiar because the book of mormon prophets uh were plugged into this idea justice would require that somebody had to pay there has to be a penalty otherwise god is robbed somehow and so with this whole idea of sin now you You've got to find a way to uh, have somebody that has done something they shouldn't. There has to be a way that they have paid. And in that early days uh, under the Vulgate, what they termed was is that you were going to have to do penance. You had to pay for it somehow. You got to do penance. And each time then that becomes repentance. And that's where the word repentance comes from. It is doing penance paying for your sin and and in a way that would finally appease a god who was still upset that somebody's going around breaking his laws and this this idea of sin and who's sinning and and what do we do about it just promulgated forward and so now the church was built around doing penance and the bishops in those churches the priests were charged with uh, deciding who needed to do penance, uh, how much penance would be paid out, and at the end of the day, when was when had they done enough penance, and that that would exist and that would uh, go <laughs> right into the grave, so that now you have places like purgatory and limbo, which were really uh, like, well, they died without doing all of the sacraments and they died without enough having done enough penance to pay for what they did. So now we have to do uh, indulgences in this life. Somehow we're paying for uh, and trying to repeat enough sacraments in this life to help get these guys out of, to get our family, people that we loved, out of prison, out of jail, if you will, um, on the other side of the veil. Now, what's not said, though, at the same time is 
what if you're not even Catholic? What if you live in China or Japan or, or Mesoamerica and you've never even heard of Jesus? Well, now you've got no chance. So, so except for those, those uh, members of the church that had the ability to have somebody praying for them or get uh, uh, the last rites or the sacraments, they were all going to hell. And so Augustine saw the vast majority of people uh, that were born on the earth, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, going to, to hell and basically condemned forever. Now, you would think, <laughs> you would think by the time we get to Luther standing uh, outside the door of the church, uh, pinning up his grievances, that he would say, enough of this. Uh, but actually, in a lot of ways, Luther compounded the problem, as did Calvin. And they're going to say, no, we don't like these indulgences. Uh, we don't like people paying for sins and paying for the sins of their dead. Uh, but you know what? They're going to create a God who is even more vengeful and more distant and more angry. We're going to create a God that if you don't confess Jesus, um, you're going to go to hell. And again, they're going to create a God and perpetuate a God that puts us uh, even farther from any possibility of getting into his presence. In fact, the, the, their belief was is that God was, um, n was never going to accept uh, any kind of um, uh, humans that were just uh, unworthy. And so what's going to happen here is that they, these, these um, shell of unworthy people think kind of like a, a uh, bad vessel could be imp uh, impugned, uh, imputed righteousness could be placed in them. And so now you're going to be filled with God's grace, and that's how you're going to finally make it to heaven because you would never, ever, ever make it on your own. This whole idea then of sin uh, and distant angry God and the need for um, uh, somebody to pay the penalty to appease an angry God, a God that is placing justice on one side, needing, needing justice and mercy trying to get them off the hook, uh, and the idea of the advocate, uh, again, was foremost in the minds of the uh, first generation of the church. And certainly, especially for a lot of his life, Joseph Smith, because this is what he was trained for, this is what he understood, this is what he read. Uh, and the first generation of the church really saw, even in the restored gospel, a chance to uh, uh, take missionary work out and maybe be able to save from sin more people on the face of the earth and the, before the second coming would come now they were so entrenched in this idea of sin and this and the sin uh, paradigm that when the section 76 comes in 1832 with the three degrees of glory shocked they were shocked that 
God wasn't relegating most people to a burning, fiery hell, that there were more glories even for people that they saw as wicked. And, and it was met with a lot of resistance. Uh, the story goes that Brigham Young, it held him up about 18 months accepting the gospel because of that particular doctrine that God was more merciful uh, than they thought he should be. He should exact more justice and more pain on, uh, on those that would break the laws of God. Um, now, to be really honest, and here's, to, here's the struggle that I have, guys. Um, my struggle is the fact that so much of this theology and so much idea, we've kind of borrowed into our culture, by and large, uh, and accept the idea that it's all about sin and it's all about who goes to heaven and what are the requirements and who makes it and who doesn't. And we've just added some other dimensions about who goes to the celestial kingdom and what about that what about that bottom part of the celestial kingdom and then, well, then terrestrial and then the telestial and who goes where and how long will they have to stay there and will my family get split up because part of us is here and part of us is there and and uh, and then when judgment day is coming and here's this great moment where we're going to all be divided off did I make it or not did I pay enough did I you know we just go on and on and on because of this sin paradigm that we've been living with since the time of Augustine that's a long. That is a long time to be caught in this way of of looking at things. Now, you might ask, well, well, then what other way is there? Well, what breathes in the gospel as you do a closer reading is that that's not. I believe that's not what God intends at all. This great, this great God, our our heavenly parents put together a plan in the pre-existence, in a pre-mortal life that ultimately would result in the reconciliation of almost the entire uh, human race, their sons and daughters, and to this reconciliation would bring them home. That was the idea. And, and this plan was put together then so that uh, the great plan of the atonement, which if we look at uh, the word atonement, was actually framed in the Middle Ages uh, by Tinsdale. The word atonement in Romans 5 actually originally read, and much more accurately, I believe, read about the reconciliation that we have with God. That the goal is not to be atoned for, uh, pen, paid for by penalty, but to be reconciled, to be changed and altered permanently in a way so that we are filled with the glory of God and that we are then comfortable to enter into the presence of our heavenly parents. And in... In reality, what we're saying is that the, uh, the great plan of salvation is actually the great plan of transformation. It's about change. It's about uh, however long it takes with Jesus 
not giving up on us ever, to alter us and change us and transform us into beings of light who can dwell with God eternally and and do whatever that means. Uh, so, so for instance, what does that that mean? Well, think about. Um, you might say, well, what about the, the wicked? What about the atheists? What about people in churches that believe different than I do? Um, we think about, well, that's uh, people like uh, Mother Teresa, who understood and served and loved and cared and was transformed by her uh, selfless lives, life. In so many ways, she is along this uh, path towards being transformed and and making it back into the celestial kingdom. It, so as President Oaks has said repeatedly, in the end of the day, uh, exaltation is, a, is not about what we've done. Exaltation is not about what we've done, about our resume. Exaltation about, is about what we have become what we've been changed into. And uh, Mother Teresa uh, changed over time. She became somebody. Think about all of throughout history, all of the wonderful uh, monks and uh, Muslims and Buddhists and all those that have worked to become Christ-like, though they did not know that, that's, that it was Christ-like. They just knew that they needed to become kind and serving and loving and caring and doing everything that Christ would have ever asked them to do. And they did. But wait, wait, someone will say. I know that it's about uh, the priesthood keys that were restored and nobody's getting into heaven uh, until they have uh, received uh, the endowment uh, by those that have the uh, correct keys and the priesthood keys. Uh, and so uh, they're not going to get in without that. Well, true enough. We understand that. But let's keep one thing in mind. <laughs> by, by the end of the millennium, by the end of the millennium, how many people that have ever lived will have received their temple endowments, baptism and temple endowments? The quick answer to that is everybody. Everybody will have had those endowments by the proper keys and having made those covenants. So you're exactly right. Nobody's being exalted without receiving temple covenants. But everybody's going to receive them. It will just be up to them if they're going to accept them. Because at the end of the day, they're all going to be transformed and, and changed into beings however long it takes to, to make sure that they get there. Now, that begins to be then that, it, that we begin to see one of the things that comes with uh, being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our understanding of the incredible mercy and love and the boundless patience of God, of, of Jesus, to bring and reconcile and bring everybody home is magnificent. It is amazing. So if we, get, if we can step back from the plan of salvation, meaning who makes it and who doesn't, and move to the plan of exaltation, 
where God is eagerly prepared to teach and train and work with us and love us until we are in a place to be comfortable in their presence. This plan of transformation has been at the heart of the gospel all along. Now, at times, in our culture, uh, think about the early period of the the church where they're all coming out of very Calvinist, uh, angry God uh, histories. Think about uh, the the decades of uh, more modern, uh, the 60s and 70s and 80s, where uh, the leaders of the church, striving to do the best they could, created a a culture that was very, very heavy on obedience uh, and a strict obedience. And for those of us like myself that grew up during the period of what I call the obedience 80s, where it was about obedience, somewhere along the line, it's it's not too far to go from obedience over to uh, condemning and, and have a refocus on sin and a fear of judgment day where we're all going to come up short. Um, and yet if you listen closely to the vast majority of the talks now coming out of General Conference, you will hear a much more conciliatory tone as we make this change, I think, that is much more loving, much more inclusive uh, to do working on each other and helping one another. And in in a sense, this is what we have restored. We've restored, we're going back, not necessarily to an early church, because the church was very poorly organized in the early days of Jesus and Paul. But it was, what we have restored is a, a, a loving, merciful, weeping God who is close to us, who shares our passions, Uh, who mourns with us, who then wants us to come home and is going to do everything possible uh, to help us come home. Now, let me just just start to widen down by saying this. And and thank you for, if you've listened to this point, thank you for hearing me and my uh, rambling at this point. This change is not going to be easy. Uh, We have been... Uh, firmly ensconced in the idea of sin and punishment, uh, that repentance is about having to have paid a price. And and in some ways it feels like uh, many of us become, uh, like in the parable of the vineyard, uh, the the early workers in the parable of the vineyard that the Savior talks about that are going to get the wage that we wanted to go work in the, the vineyard. Uh, and then people come late to the vineyard that doesn't seem like they worked hard enough or didn't deserve it enough uh, that come late in the afternoon and then were shocked and horrified that they're getting the same wage that we got. And yet that is the Savior's plan, that they will. That is amazing to me. Uh, and yet we have to be careful. Uh, we get the other, the other uh, view of this that the Savior gave us was uh, that he tells the, a parable the, of a man who had two sons. One son we know is the prodigal son who went and did everything that he shouldn't have. And then he comes back 
in repentance after a lifetime of spending the family's money and and immediately the the father says he was dead and now he's alive he was lost and found and he's just grateful to have him back and the older son who's the other prodigal son in the story doesn't want to come into the feast because he's angry because uh, the the youngest son seems to have got away with it uh, and he he should never have been able to come back and yet the father's already put the ring on his finger and already made him uh, returned him as an heir and it, and if you're in the justice mode that doesn't make sense if you're in the justice mode then uh, the people coming late to the the vineyard shouldn't be able to get paid the same wage as the, the first guys that is the fairness and justice part of us that we've got to let go of so uh i i leave you with this that in in my belief is that uh we we worship a god who is far more merciful than we have given him credit for for decades and decades that what is being presented to us in the gospel of jesus christ the the God of uh, Moses 7 who weeps with us is the one that will bring almost the entirety of his creation home and they will be reconciled. That is the power of the Savior's uh, work and effort in our behalf. Uh, I pray that we can uh, recognize this and uh, be willing to maybe make that change and see a much more merciful God. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.